0: If the Secretary of State, if the National Security Advisor, if the Secretary of Defense, if the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if all four of them are still in their roles six months from now, shame on us.
1: That's Representative Peter Meyer, a combat veteran demanding accountability for the disastrous U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan on this solemn 20th anniversary of the attacks of 9-11. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is The Firing Line Podcast. Meyer is a freshman congressman representing Michigan's third district, who served in Iraq and spent two years in Afghanistan as a civilian providing support to aid workers. You say that the defining characteristic of America's post-9-11 conflicts is, quote, futility. Walk me through how your view evolved. I
0: was just realizing that everything we touched kind of turned to ash.
1: Until recently, his record in Congress was dominated by this fact. He was the only first-term House Republican to vote to impeach President Trump. I could not have been more
0: disappointed. I believed in you, and I've lost that belief. Are you concerned you ended your career with that vote? Oh, I, I may very well have.
1: Now he's making a name for himself, calling out the Biden administration's incompetence in Afghanistan.
0: We've seen tremendous amounts of deception or misinformation or misunderstanding or just ignorance from this administration.
1: He flew into Kabul, with another veteran, Democratic Representative Seth Moulton, during last month's deadly evacuation to assess the situation on the ground firsthand. Meyer tells me he could support another impeachment in the future. Is President Biden's botched evacuation from Afghanistan grounds for impeachment proceedings, in your view?
0: I think it very well could be.
1: Representative Peter Meyer, welcome to Firing Line, and thank you for your service.
0: Thank you for having me on.
1: So, as America marks the 20th anniversary of September 11th, how do you reflect now on the terror attacks our country suffered two decades ago? Uh,
0: I think it's a moment that both feels still very recent in time um, and in partially how seared it is into many of our memories and how formative a moment it was, especially somebody who was growing up and and 9-11 occurred while I was in middle school. Uh, I think it very much Shaped how we are in the world in this post-Cold War moment um, and also led to a lot of of excesses, led to a lot of mistakes. It's hard to look back at the unity that we felt on September 12th at at the um, hope for our ability to shape the world. And then now, two decades later... See so much of that just crumbled to dust. Uh, whether it was our intervention in Afghanistan, uh, whether it was our freighted involvement in Iraq, um, whether it was just the, the political arc of polarization. And again, feeling two decades ago like we were at our most united point, and now you know struggling to find a, a comparable series of, of divisions and tensions you know, you know, since maybe the '60s or '70s. You
1: served in an army intelligence battalion in Iraq. And after that, as a civilian, you worked in a non-governmental organization helping relief workers in Afghanistan. What called you to service?
0: Uh, It was something I was certainly interested in before 9-11, but I think September 11 put a very fine point on on just the the opportunities to engage and and the threats that we faced uh, around the world. Um, No longer could we look at something occurring half a world away and think it was isolated, that it wouldn't come back. Uh, in some way, shape, or form. And I think the the feeling that I felt, and I know many others of my generation felt this way, is that if somebody was going to be on that line, um, that we kind of had to join them, that we couldn't be bystanders, we couldn't just sit back and assume somebody else would carry that water.
1: After 9-11, you supported America's war efforts, and you tell a story about how you even carried a pro-war poster around your high school in a backpack, just in case you stumbled across some anti-war protesters. Um, now, after serving in Iraq and working in Afghanistan as a civilian, you say that the defining characteristic of America's post nine eleven conflicts is quote futility. Walk me through how your view evolved.
0: Now, I, I, you—I was very much a hawk um, when I was in high school. I, I founded our uh, teenage Republicans club um, again when there was that that tension over whether or we not we're going to invade Iraq. You know, in that. 18 month period after 9 11, uh, when things were at the United Nations Security Council, when there was uh, the the WMD teams going around prior to the invasion and and finding um, you know evidence of of deception on behalf of of the Hussein regime in Iraq. I I think it was looking back. I mean, it was part of that belief that the U.S. could shape any positive impact through military force the rest of the world. Um, You know that seemed. uh, you know, possible and, and in an optimistic sense in 2003 and, and 2004. It certainly seemed that way in, in late 2001 when we went into Afghanistan in 2002, uh, that all we really needed to do was put some forces in the area and they could topple uh, whatever you know, dictator or uh, terrorist group or malevolent force was there. And then, like, you know, uh, like the ground after a, a, a long rain, you know, green sprouts would shoot up, and then we could just leave, and it'd be happily ever after. Uh, the reality is that in Afghanistan, the Taliban was emboldened by the longer-term U.S. presence. Um, that initial resistance, you know, fades, but then long-term resistance starts to build as. Uh, you know, our, our weaknesses as a force projector become more readily apparent. Our ability to be distracted becomes more readily apparent. In Afgh- in Iraq, um, you know, we uncorked a very messy sectarian situation that Saddam Hussein had kept repressed, uh, leading to both Shia militia death squads supported by Iran and the rise of Al Qaeda in Iraq and, the Iraq, and then the Islamic State of Iraq, and then the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS. So, in all of these ways. Uh, it's it's hard to look at the world as it is today and argue that over the past two decades we have promoted uh, more safety than than risk that's been created that we have achieved more uh, than we have lost and you know serving both as a combatant in Iraq and as a non-combatant in Afghanistan being on both sides of the blast wall it was pretty evident that these wars the, the failure of our war in Iraq was not isolated i mean it was more a trademark characteristic of the way in which we were going about this intervention and that we need to be content or we need to look at stability as a positive indicator uh, even if it's not the best of all worlds because instability is something that all of our adversaries take advantage of
1: so what changed in your thinking was it your experience on the ground was it your you know your practical lived hands-on interactions with iraqis and afghans that informed your change of heart
0: Oh, it was just realizing that everything we touched kind of turned to ash, um, that partially you cannot. not because we
1: touched it or the way we did it?
0: Well, I mean, I would love for us to have been engaged in, you know, instead of leading with the DOD and then leaving state uh, to clean up the mess, instead of having an intelligence community that was more focused on who can we kill next than how do we inform policymakers so that they can make the best decisions and judgments. Uh, you know, everything was prioritized around this uh, this martial response and around this, you know, frankly, what I think grew out of a sense of we need vengeance, right? and I think, again, and in, in, on a psychological level, Afghanistan uh, was wholly unsatisfying from a, a feeling that we have avenged the the horrors and the tragedy of September September 11th. I mean, there's a lot of places in Afghanistan, especially in that early um, you know post Taliban period. You know, you can drop some bombs and it does not look too different before and after uh, versus, you know, what impact we saw on lower Manhattan. So this sense that that we had been struck and we punched back, but it just kind of was an empty puncher. We were punching air. And then so much of that pent up anger and and need to to recast and reshape and make sure what happened on 9-11 didn't happen again, just pushed us way far beyond where we could have or should have gone. and again, you know, uh, having been a believer in the ability of the U.S. through force to effect a positive outcome and then to see time and time and time again that not come to fruition, uh, you know, maybe those were all a series of independent mistakes, or maybe that's just not something that we can expect to achieve.
1: So what's the alternative? What would have been the alternative in the wake of 9-11?
0: I mean, and that's that's where the challenge lies. I mean, there are obviously alternative realities, one where the Taliban chooses to hand over Osama bin Laden uh, or, you know, with or without, you know, kind of Pakistani governmental and, you know, ISI um, suasion. Or and know, what is
1: the alternative response from our end after 9-11? If it's, if, it's, if it's not to engage, if it's not to take action, I mean, did we really have a choice?
0: And that's where I don't look back critically on, on what we did or how we reacted in those moments, but on how that reaction, and if you look at Afghanistan, how, you know, what was a sense of, of vengeance and we need justice to be served very quickly morphed into a counter-narcotics mission and a nation-building mission, and uh, we're going to do everything we can and, and kind of build Afghanistan in our own image, you know, build their security forces in our own image you know, how rapidly this became an opportunity uh, for every idea to be thrown at the wall. There's a reason in the military uh, why one of the most pernicious individuals is that good idea theory that's just casting off, you know, potential things that one could do and the way in which that inherently distracts us and gets us away from what we are actually meant to do or supposed to do. Um, you know, obviously Iraq was a war that should not have been fought, that you know, we uh, created a lot more damage and destruction than we prevented. Um, and this is also the problem with having a, a degree of strategic impatience all around the world. Uh, the way that the U.S. engages is we do not have an overarching objective we seek to meet. Uh, we have a bunch of ideas and a bunch of opportunities, and we try to match the two together but fundamentally look at the world as a series of problems to solve rather than long-term challenges to manage. So we'll focus on one area, get distracted, you know, go down that path, get bored, leave, get distracted by something else. Meanwhile, uh, while we're distracted elsewhere, that problem continues to metastasize. I mean, and you can draw parallels to what's gone on with China's engagement throughout the South uh, Pacific and their, you know, really expansionary approach. Uh, I think the most concrete way is we left Iraq in 2011, and I was serving in Iraq in, up until mid 2011, our attention shifted almost immediately to Afghanistan. Both in terms of uh, Department of Defense prioritization on the troop side and also on the media side. I, I was on leave from Iraq at a bar, and someone came up and said, "Oh, here you're you're on leave. You're on military. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm on leave from Iraq right now. No, you mean Afghanistan." We're in Afghanistan. We're not in Iraq anymore. It's like, took a lot of restraint to not, you know, strangle this guy. It's like, no, I remember what war I just was fighting and going back to in a week, right? That sense of of when we lose attention and lose focus, it, it just is a complete shift. That, to me, that's one of the reasons why um, the fact that we didn't have enduring diplomatic or other intelligence engagement meant that we missed or or didn't respond to the rise of ISIS in that region. We didn't address some of those tensions that were exacerbating.
1: So so then, Congressman, how do you respond to the argument that General Petraeus, for example, emphatically made to this audience uh, a few weeks ago that ultimately the cost of staying in Afghanistan had become sustainable over the last several years in the sense that the loss of American lives had diminished to sustainable levels. American troops weren't involved in active fighting, and that we were benefiting from the success of a relatively stable Afghanistan. how do you so, how, how do you think about that?
0: Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's um, if our only metric is the loss of American lives, then in one way it was sustainable. Uh, if we cared at all about Afghan civilians who were dying at an extraordinary rate because of our risk aversion of American lives, we shifted everything to an air campaign. So this, yes, we, we didn't have Americans dying at the rate that we had grown accustomed to. Afghan national security forces were getting slaughtered. Afghan civilians were getting slaughtered. We were losing those battles because we can say, oh, we're so sorry that we accidentally killed your mother, sister, husband, father, brother. We're sorry that happened. Here's a $2,000 Salacia payment uh, to try to make that right. That's not going to convince somebody that America's intervention is in their best long-term interest, and for somebody who, uh, there are a lot of individuals in Washington D.C. whose exposure to Afghanistan came solely through talking with the educated, you know, fluent English-speaking elite in Kabul. Uh, who had benefited enormously from our involvement there. Uh, many had, had gone to you know, universities, had gone to graduate school in the U.S., had made a tremendous amount of money, um, some legitimately, some off of greed, graft, and corruption, you know, but they very much lived that closeted existence. Uh, and, and there was risk. Obviously, there were suicide bombings, there were assassination attempts, there was you know, that violence within, within Kabul. Um, but compared to the terror of living out in uh, more far-flung provinces, uh, compared to the terror of of having you know many members of your family or extended family having been killed, um, especially in U.S. airstrikes, um, you know some of those folks are. You know, would they have preferred that the U.S. was victorious and that there was a better status quo? Sure, but to them. Um, the fall of Kabul meant the end of a war that had taken a punishing cost and a punishing tool. So, I, I frankly find the idea that there was a, we had some type of sustainable outcome or sustainable status quo laughable um, and, and frankly offensive to the folks who were dying in droves.
1: Congressman, tell me how your experience serving in Afghanistan and in Iraq informed your decision as a member of Congress to make that trip back to Afghanistan to observe the American evacuation of Kabul with Democratic Congressman and fellow war veteran, Seth Moulton.
0: Yeah, there's no replacement for what you you see on the ground. I mean, that was something that um, I was highly critical of the the State Department while I was in Afghanistan in 2013 to 2015. Uh, They never left the embassy. I I mean, you don't get the atmospherics. You don't see how people are reacting, that feel of, of tension. Um, to me, there's, there's no alternative to being in a community to seeing how folks are, are reacting, um, what the feel is like, what the emotional register is, um, and specifically talking to folks who are on the ground who know and are seeing that but not, and not waiting for those views to get distilled, to get packaged, to get homogenized, uh, to be sanitized, and then ultimately presented to the public once they've been stripped of anything of value.
1: So what did you see? I mean, what did you see on the ground? Because, I mean, in in, in the reporting about your trip, it, it, you you indicate that you're actually your mind was changed when you got to that airport in Kabul about the August thirty first withdrawal deadline. What did you see there that changed your opinion?
0: You know, I will say we saw a security situation that was so much more vulnerable, untenable um, than. I would have expected U.S. forces would ever be in. I mean, maybe with the exception of some remote valleys in Kunar, uh, I I can't think of a time that U.S. military troops have been so exposed, have had such a disadvantageous position, and were just so vulnerable. I mean, we were completely dependent on the benevolence of the Taliban for our evacuation efforts. Um, They could have launched a single mortar round and disabled that runway and we'd be dealing with a a combination of Quezon and and Tehran, right? They could have immediately started taking pot shots or started opening up um, on the crowds. And, you know, American citizens, permanent residents, you know, Afghans who worked for the U.S. um, or for Afghan National Security Forces would have been the ones caught in the crossfire. I mean, this, we were just, we had no leverage. We had no negotiating position. We were completely dependent. And by the way, August 31st, um, that was our fallback deadline. We Biden initially said September 11th. Taliban said, "Okay, fine." Um, you know, we wanted May 1st, but we'll take that. And then he said August 31st. And They go, "Okay, if that's your deadline, fine." And then we went back and tried to get it extended. They're like, "What the hell are you doing? We already gave you a deadline. You already, you already. This was your deadline." So. That so, that that was, that was the
1: value of being on the ground and seeing it
0: partially, that and also just realizing how much the culture in Kabul changed overnight. Um, I did not see a single person in jeans, and and before every other guy on the street in Kabul would wear jeans, right? The, the all of the dress that the women were wearing was far more conservative, you know, overnight. I mean, that um, it just the cultural kind of gains and changes and feelings of expression changed remarkably. Uh, Looking at how those gates were managed at the airport, uh, specifically Abbey Gate, uh, which is where the suicide bomber struck a few days later, um, tragically killing 11 Marines, a a soldier and a Navy corpsman, just the impossibility of securing that, uh, and just how close and in proximity U.S. forces and the Taliban were at some of the other conversations uh, we had with the generals on the ground uh, that again, actually give us information that was not the deception, not the misinformation that we we're hearing or just inaccuracies we were hearing from the State Department, from the Department of Defense, uh, from the National Security Advisor, uh, from you know, President Biden himself. Uh, getting clear information on how this evacuation was going, how we could get our people out that we were talking to. Our office was in conversation with several hundred. It may have been over a thousand individuals uh, that we were trying to get out. We were able to get some of those folks through the gates while we were there. But just that whole fact that we were sitting there getting fed breadcrumbs, you know, when there was no real confidence that anybody had their hand, you know, on the rudder, um, that there was any direction, you know, from DOD, from state, um, that they were, and this was confirmed when we were on the ground, this was all folks trying to do their best to manage chaos. And, and that's... You,
1: you just said we were able to get some folks through the gate when you were there. I mean, did, were, did, were you involved in efforts to actually evacuate individual Afghans?
0: So we, obviously, in touch with folks, individual Afghans, um, we didn't, I would have loved to have done that at the gate. I was also very aware that as members of Congress, you know, if we were on the ground too long or if we were in a location for too long, we could raise that profile. Um, and the last thing a general on the ground wants is for a member of Congress to, you know, just go off on their own and try to do some cowboy antics. Um, but in terms of directly plugging in with folks who were able to go over the wall, who were able to get some folks out, um, you know, we we saw tremendous efforts and tremendous work on behalf of some of those individuals Um, active duty military uh, and some of our State Department folks. uh, And we were able to triage, help directly input some of the most important cases that we were tracking, not just in our individual offices, but also through the large outside effort and mobilization of former diplomats, of the veterans community, of many elements of the nonprofit community who have been involved in Afghanistan to get people out.
1: You know, you, you did receive criticism. I know you're aware of it. You still stand by your decision to go.
0: I do. I I would say the only thing that took me by surprise um, is I did not realize how white hot with rage the White House and the State Department would be at having been, um, frankly, embarrassed. I mean, they didn't know we were there. I mean, it it kind of shines a light on just how chaotic and disorganized uh, from leadership level this whole process has been. And especially, they wanted nothing more than to refocus attention on domestic priorities to, to focus on the budget reconciliation to focus on everything else um, now that, that's easy to do if, if your biggest concern is poll numbers if you're talking to folks or you have friends who are on the ground who are you know, saying i'm staying here tonight because the taliban showed up my house yesterday um, that feeling of impotence that feeling that not only have we betrayed these individuals who put faith in us but we are actively looking the other way while they get hunted down um, that's not something that i can sleep at night, uh, having, trying to wash my hands up, which is why I'm engaged, sometimes not sleeping at night because cobbles eight and a half hours ahead. But um, the White House wanted to do that. The the sort of democratic machine lockstep wanted to put this past um, because they think that optics control reality and that's not the case.
1: You referenced uh, the suicide bomber at the Abbey Gate uh, that that detonated just after you left, a few days after you left. Is it your view that American men and women who made the ultimate sacrifice that day were ordered into a situation with unnecessary risk factors?
0: I would say certainly unnecessary risk factors in terms of the Kabul airport on the whole. Um, I will say, and, and this is why um, I think that their service is some of the most selfless um, of any folks we've seen in the post-9-11 era, specifically that you know, there have been known risks um, and there were just inevitable vulnerabilities. The The easy risk averse thing to do would have been just to lock the gate and say, sorry for those who can't get past. Um, but they made the conscious decision to keep that gate open as long as possible to get as many people through as possible. So, I mean, the, I think there are plenty of, of lives that have been lost in Iraq and Afghanistan when you can say, you know, what did they die for? I mean, and, and there is maybe the sense of a die for those that are left and right, or, or for the broader sense of a mission. But, but strategically, it, it just it's uh, in the words of a, a State Department official we spoke to there, um, saying, you know, I don't want to explain to another mother or father, you know, why their child died for a reason I can't articulate. In the case of the thirteen who died at Abbey Gate, you know, they died so that others may live, so that that gate could be kept open, so that people could get to safety. Um, so I. You know, there's a lot of things that we're very critical about. We're very critical about the fact that folks were put in that position to begin with um, at Kabul Airport. Um, But how our forces on the ground manage that, I hold a tremendous amount of respect and admiration. Um, it, It was some of the most impressive, you know, local leadership and then just American resiliency I've ever seen.
1: So after the trip, you said the next 20 days would define the next 20 years in Afghanistan. It has been over three weeks since the fall of Kabul to the Taliban and US forces are now completely out of the country. President Biden said that every American who wants to leave will be able to leave. Has that borne out?
0: No. Uh, I mean, that's a. Where do things stand? (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think if there was an unspoken wants to be who wants to leave will be able to leave in the next 30 years right I mean, if there's some sort of unspoken time bound there uh, right now we've seen no evidence of any plan for the state department or or dod to get folks out at any degree of scale um, and we have seen no real folks leaving in uh, over a week's time um now there were onesies twosies who've gotten across the border through other efforts over a land border um i'm, I'm sure there may have been some other um you know, attempts to grab folks. And that's why I say at scale, because we have tens of thousands of folks who are still there, um, you know, a couple hundred American citizens, a couple of thousand uh, green card holders, you know, lawful permanent residents, and then obviously over 10,000 special and visa holders. So among those groups, um, we have yet to see any plan. And I frankly think the plan is for the problem to go away by um, the passage of time and, and having folks forget about it.
1: President Biden, he did commit, though. I mean, he did commit to getting interpreters out of Afghanistan who served side-by-side with our troops. And I know you have a deep background in the special immigrant visa program, the SIVs. Uh, You wrote about it in 2013, about your Iraqi interpreter who lost hope that the U.S. would honor its visa commitments to those who served alongside U.S. forces as the war ended. Uh, You are part of a bipartisan group of House members who introduced legislation in June to help protect Afghan allies. Is the process broken?
0: I don't think there was a process. I mean, I, hey, back in April, our bipartisan group said, all right, you're 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 withdrawing some agree, some disagree. We have this massive backlog. We have over 10,000 folks who've, who are eligible, who've applied, um, who get caught in this process that takes many years. And we understand, you know, bureaucratic delays, administrative hurdles, whatever we're leaving in August. And I know you're saying we have six to nine months after that and we have plenty of time, but what if we don't? Why don't we accelerate this? Why don't we move this forward? Um, Especially when it's not an issue when the security vetting's already been done. It's just a question of getting the right person to sign off at the right level. Um, So we, we, you know, responded to their requests to modify the legislation to, to, you know, speed things up to streamline. Um, again, May urging, let's go, let's go. What's going on with this backlog, June, July. I mean, it took until the end of July for these first flights to start. And it was a trickle when we needed a torrent. Yeah. So I'm, um, yeah, to say I'm, I'm, I'm cynical and angry and frustrated is quite an understatement on this issue. Um, You know, the president made a commitment to get those folks out. He also committed he wouldn't leave until we got all Americans who wanted to leave out of Afghanistan. That did not happen by August 31st. That was a commitment he made. Uh, I don't know if he intended to make it or if he was off script, um, but it was certainly not something he followed through on. We've seen tremendous amounts of deception or misinformation or misunderstanding or just ignorance from this administration, everything from saying that the Taliban and Haqqani network are, are two separate entities. Uh, I mean, they are very much blended as Suraj Adin Haqqani, who's now, um, I think, that the interior minister in the new Kabul government, uh, you know, talking about how Americans weren't being beaten, weren't being stranded, uh, every single element of, um, and, I, and I've and i actually forgotten several of the Things that they lied about earlier on, a few hit me um, a minute ago. I mean, just the, the the fact that we would, you know, stay the course, that we would still retain investment, that we had a plan to get people out. I've seen no evidence of any of this. And if it's being developed somewhere, then okay, fine. I mean, it's in process. Um, but if it's in process, you know, time is of the essence. This clock is ticking. People are dying, and our national prestige has already taken so many blows you know, this sense of of national dishonor, you know, throughout this entire withdrawal process. You know, we can't change history, but we can change how we react in this present and make sure we do right by those who stood alongside us.
1: You just referenced the new, new government in Afghanistan. Earlier this week, the Taliban claimed control of the Panjshir province, this final resistance holdout. The Taliban has introduced an interim Afghan government that includes, as you just said, for Interior Minister Surah Hajin Haqqani, uh, who is a designated terrorist with ties to al-Qaeda. He's also wanted by the U.S. government. Um, Mullah Hassan Akund, who is on the U.N. sanctions list, he is now the acting prime minister of the new government in Afghanistan. President Biden has said that recognizing the Taliban government is a, quote, long way off. Haven't we already recognized them in a certain way, both in the deal that the Trump administration made in Doha and also in the shared security during the evacuation from Kabul?
0: Yeah, the, there were plenty of dark jokes, and it was an absurd scenario, an upside-down scenario, but not lost on anybody at Kabul Airport, You know that the Taliban were functionally our host nation security partners. Uh, we were having regular meetings, deconflicting, coordinating activities, um, and there were some just... Shock and amusement at how um i mean professional is overstating it, but you know when when the Taliban got angry, it was not for absurd reasons. it was oh, okay, I could see that, that may, you know okay they, they maybe have a slight point um, I think the challenge right now i mean let us be very clear I mean the resistance that existed in the Panjshir Valley was not significant enough to to form you know anything. A serious
1: know, resistance to the Taliban.
0: And and the, the way in which the Pakistani Air Force and, and military have allegedly been involved in providing air support for the Taliban is also really problematic. Um, I think one of my premier frustrations is, throughout the withdrawal process and throughout you know the period after the fall of Kabul I was getting far more accurate information from Twitter than I was from the U.S. government and right now I'm getting information from Twitter uh, and I'm getting nothing from the U.S. government so that part of that's a function of being on a recess and away from skiffs but also you know when I call and say hey do you know what's going on here and they say no (laughs) that's not a great sign Um, recognition of the Taliban is, the, frankly, the last piece of leverage that the U.S. has. I mean, the degree to which they care or, or seek out um, legitimacy or uh, standing on the world stage. And that's very much an open question. You referenced the, my comment that the next 20 days, and I think this was a week and a half ago, next 20 days will dictate the next, you know, two, de- two decades in Afghanistan. Um, it's, it's clear that the Taliban are not the, you know, hipster reform you know, forward-looking element, uh, four of the five individuals who were released from Guantanamo Bay are now in the upper echelons of the, the Taliban's leadership, uh, released from Guantanamo Bay in exchange for Bo You know, so this is, um, there's a lot of retreads. There's a lot of um, kind of institutional power brokers. There's a lot of folks with a lot of blood on their hands. Now, Afghan government had a lot of folks with blood on their hands too. You know, Rashi dosed them, the first vice president, um, who had to flee the country because of um, uh, torture and abuse allegations that I probably can't even talk about on this program, It uh, was also responsible for the death of several hundred, if not several thousand Taliban prisoners of war who were locked in shipping crates, shipping containers uh, in northern Afghanistan and, and died of exhaustion or beaten to death or shot to death. Um, you know, there were plenty of other warlords who were part of the government who did a lot of nasty things. So, you know, this is a very messy situation, no matter which way it's going to unfold. But it is a bit absurd to have an interior minister who has either a 5 or $10 million bounty on his head still from the Department of Justice.
1: One of the positions that was eliminated in this caretaker government is the Ministry of Women's Affairs. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are no women at all in the new government. And the Taliban is now indicating that they will ban women from playing sports. From your experience, is there any reason? I think you just indicated Is there any reason to believe the Taliban will treat women more inclusively in this iteration of their government?
0: We've seen some local level accommodations being made, Um, you know, a village elder, you know, a tribal elder might say, hey, we we actually want our women to go back to school, even at this level. and We want this to happen. That's we found that worked pretty well. And and we've heard plenty of examples of local level accommodations where they say, yeah, sure. OK, we don't have a problem with that. Um, Obviously, the Taliban is not forward-looking on these issues. Uh, They're not progressive. Uh, Frankly, neither are the majority of the Afghan people. And I think this was also a little bit of that deception with being rooted in, you know, here is a small class of folks who speak our language who are in Kabul who we've sent to our schools um, and have been working for us, is, is that get deluded into thinking they represent the whole of the country. They may, may represent the future. They may represent, you know, what that country can move towards, but they do not represent the present right now. Um, and that's, I think, uh, both a challenge to wrap around. And, you know, I think it's no surprise um, when you empower, if, if I'm an Afghan man and I hear women's empowerment, I, the question naturally is, where's that power coming from? It's going from them.
1: You've said that President Biden and his administration have lied repeatedly to the American people and to Congress over the course of the withdrawal. You know, there are hardliners in the Republican Party uh, who said that Biden should resign uh, or face impeachment. And you have said that you hope at least that there are resignations uh, within the administration for what has happened in Afghanistan over the last several weeks. Listen, you are somebody I know who takes impeachment very seriously, as you are one of the 10 Republicans who actually voted for President Trump's second impeachment after the riots at uh, the Capitol on January 6th. Is President Biden's botched evacuation from Afghanistan grounds for impeachment proceedings in your view?
0: I think it very well could be. Uh, You know, I think there is, well, I guess the question's raised, is incompetence impeachment? Um, Or was there something, were there other signals that were indicated? Was there something deeper? Right now, we have the consequences. We don't have you know, what was going on behind the scenes, how these decisions were made. Um, I, you know, obviously set down a marker where I view impeachment when it came to uh, President Trump's conduct around January 6th. Uh, To me, that was and abdication of the oath of office, both in the immediate response to it when the numbers two, three, and four in that presidential line of succession were at the Capitol and not a finger was lifted to ensure provide for their security, and also in the flirtation with political violence and trying to extract by force what you couldn't extract at the ballot box. When it comes to President Biden's behavior on this, uh, I mean, A, there's a prudential question of um, what... Good. Biden's impeached, what next? Um, you know, I, I think, we, again, we have an overarching crisis of competence within our government. I'm not sure that that would be solved, that issue would be solved through uh, impeachment right now. Um, but I can tell you, I will, if articles are introduced, um, I will treat them the same way as I've treated uh, prior articles. Um, so far in my you know long and tenured history, I haven't been in Congress for just over eight months.
1: Well, let me, let me show you something. In 1979, in the original version of this program, Firing Line, that was hosted by William F. Buckley Jr., Buckley welcomed General William Westmoreland to the program. He was, of course, the former commander of U.S. troops in Vietnam. And they had this wide-ranging conversation in a program entitled The Crisis in the U.S. Military. Listen to how he reflected on Vietnam.
0: Is there a sense in which you have let down the American people uh, by any failure to dramatize the high risk of ignoring uh, military advice in those areas in which military advice is especially qualified to give sound advice well i think uh, you're quite right there are perceptions as you have described them
1: the vietnam war was a sour experience for the american public and without question uh, a lot of of the
0: failure there to accomplish that which our country set out to accomplish has rubbed off on the military, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, albeit uh, perhaps unfairly. But uh, on the other hand, you do allude to the fact that maybe the military should have been a little bit more vocal Mm -hmm. and should have been more forthcoming with their advice. And I think there is merit to that argument. Uh, The Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, perhaps should have asserted themselves
1: more. So, Congressman, as a veteran and a member of Congress who visited Kabul in the final hours, do you think the military should have been more vocal with President Biden about the risks of withdrawing in such a short time frame?
0: I am a little bit surprised that we haven't seen the resignations that I think we should have seen, that members of the military and this is always a, a very it's it's a delicate subject in civil military engagement right at what point do you push forward and say um you know i i'm going to you know we have civilian control you can't have somebody pushing forward and trying to overrule you know that civilian decision at the same time you as a member of the military as a senior leadership are by sticking in that role by sticking with that position validating, even if you don't agree with the course of action, you're validating the leadership that chose that course of action by continuing to serve. I think this is one of the reasons why, and we saw with um, Secretary of Defense Mattis when he disagreed with President Trump's decision on Syria, he resigned. I think that's what we should have seen in this Afghanistan withdrawal. And again, you can make the argument that after the fall of Kabul, well, I don't want to cause more instability, fine, sure. So where are the resignations now? As, as the But are you forward,
1: saying that it's the Defense Department's fault and it's the military's fault? Or, or do you lay the blame also at, at the feet of the State Department or the NSC or the White House?
0: 100% all of the above. I mean, this, what we saw does not take place because there was one breakdown in one place. Uh, I think the ultimate accountability obviously lies with the president who appointed and directed and established the priorities of these individuals. And then within the State Department, it obviously lies with the Secretary of State, within the Defense Department, with the Secretary of Defense, within the NSC, with the National Security Advisor. You know, I mean, all of these entities and all of these bodies were integral to this failure. And, and I think the, whether it was this decision for the State Department to retain control uh, throughout the collapse, uh, you know, I, I support the State Department being more forward engaged uh, on these issues, but the State Department does not react to crises. It does not react to emergencies. It is a, uh, it has a lot of cultural issues that need to be reformed and addressed in a way that can only be done internally. You know, DOD can do emergencies. What DOD does not do well is establish and keep to long-term priorities or appreciate that there are other tools in its toolkit, but a hammer. Right. The DOD is not a precise instrument and it's not going to be you know, focused on those non-kinetic components. It is not a diplomatic entity. The intelligence community, I mean, good Lord, the fact that our, longer, our largest CIA stations were in Kabul and Baghdad for the past two decades. What type of a warped foreign policy is that making when very clearly your pathway to promotion and pathway to relevance within an agency that again, is supposed to empower lawmakers, give them decisions, give policymakers, excuse me, give policymakers information so they can make the best policy possible. How does that become an assassination complex? Again, I don't have any moral issue uh, with that occurring, but show me how that strategy has worked. Show me how it's made us safer and hasn't just metastasized the problem when right now, 20 years after 9-11, every conceivable terrorist organization, maybe with the exception of Al-Qaeda, every conceivable terrorist organization is leaps and bounds more influential than they were two decades ago. And where we have several groups that have sprung up that didn't exist, that have come to enormous, come to be able to control territory in large swaths, at least temporarily. This was something we never saw in the pre-9-11 environment.
1: Help me just understand, then, who should resign?
0: Uh, I, I is it view, political leadership? I think there should be political resignations. I'm, I'm surprised that there, and again, there's a difference between resigning because you disagree with the course of action. That window is passed, right? The Mattis-like resignation, that window passed. Right now, it's resigning because you realize that the, the lack of fitness to perform the job that you're currently doing. And I-
1: The, the I National said, Security Advisor?
0: I have said, and we'll, if, if all four principals, if the um, Secretary of State, if the National Security Advisor, if the Secretary of Defense, if the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if all four of them are still in their roles six months from now, shame on us. I mean, that, that just reflects such a desire to move past, you know, to view the fall of Kabul as a speed bump to get by, rather than as a pivotal moment in our foreign policy engagement and in the failures of our national security establishment to reckon with.
1: General Milley said in an interview on Fox News that he expects a civil war in Afghanistan to begin as soon as a year from now. Senator Lindsey Graham had told the BBC that America will have to reinvade Afghanistan. What conditions would lead to such a dramatic reversal, Congressman?
0: Um, I mean, obviously, right now, the the Taliban are just announced their government. There's a lot of internal factions and internal disputes they're still trying to broker. Uh, you know, you have, I mentioned that four of those five individuals released from Guantanamo Bay and the Obama administration, as SWAP for Bob four of the five um, are now part of that government uh, in senior leadership positions. Now, they may have achieved vaunted status because they were at Gitmo. I mean, that's uh, kind of the, you know, the Oxford grad program of, yeah. um, you know,
1: Rhodes Scholarship. Military, yeah, yeah
0: militant organizations. Um, but at the same time, you know they've been removed from the battlefield they aren't intimately involved as many of the folks who have been fighting for for years or for decades in a more tactical and intimate capacity you know have been uh, the the Quetta shura the Peshawar shura you know those uh, folks who were in Pakistan in relative safety and relative comfort you know are have been very different from those who have been hiding out in the woods and in the forest and in the caves and, and in a position where they were at far greater danger and losing their men so there's a lot of cultural differences um, and, and feeling in sacrificial differences between those folks. And that's before you get to some of the other factions in terms of you know what they're willing to accept on the violence side, what they're willing to accept in terms of you know, female rights, in terms of uh, uh, a degree of subservience or not uh, to the Pakistani security services. There's a lot of different components that have to be worked out here. And if those don't work out well, um, the civil war rises again.
1: Do you have concerns because there are some security experts, congressmen, who say that it's really, truly under those conditions only a matter of time before extremist groups reconstitute themselves in Afghanistan, regenerate, and again threaten U.S. security and and our interests. How likely does that seem to you?
0: I, I certainly think it's possible. Um, I think it's also important to note that not everything is about us, uh, that there are plenty of others with more regional ambitions. I think um, uh, there's a you know, I, I forget, Apologize, I forget what his governmental position is, but there was a gentleman from Badakhshan province um, who, and that that kind of extends a little bit into China, who has relations with uh, the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement, I believe it is, uh, which is you know has traditionally fought China. Right. There's a lot of other groups and whether it is the emboldening um, of Tariq Taliban Pakistani, the, the Pakistani Taliban that has fought the Pakistani government, uh, whether it is groups that are going against Russia, you know, some Chechen separatists you know, view this or folks going against China. There's a lot of different ways this can shake out, um, not necessarily just Al Qaeda feeling they have enough space that's reconstituted because they never really lost that space in the Pakistani tribal areas. I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, and they and they gained additional space in, in Syria and in parts of Iraq, you know, over the past couple of years. Uh, they could easily shift some of that movement to parts of the Sahel or in Africa. So if it's just looking for a void uh, for a vacuum to be able to reconstitute, there are other opportunities out there. Um, you know, the Taliban know that we could drop a lot of bombs very quickly. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is very capable of killing people. We're not really great at, at figuring out how to get them to safely be in a position to be governed um but we could still wreak damage um but there's a very fair question on what the US appetite is and again i fear we go back into these cycles of laser focus you know oversaturation and then just complete abandonment pull back pull out um you know complete distraction you know if we don't find that middle ground where we say you know just because we're not here doesn't mean we can look away you know if we get to the point where You know, there's nobody from the CIA there. I mean, we find this in plenty of places around the world where there'll be a military coup or something else. And just because it's not the sexiest location, nobody's there, nobody's watching, and we're caught by surprise, right? We need to snap out of this reactive mindset.
1: America Marks, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks this weekend. How will you be spending this weekend?
0: I think, uh, you know, talking... Oh, checking in with friends. Um, I think that's, especially since the fall of Kabul, um, you know, plenty of friends who served in Afghanistan and the the first, I, I think I probably had close to a hundred of these phone calls where the first one was, you know, how are you holding up? And the second question was, who are you trying to get out? You now, I think especially with the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and, and coming after this, just embarrassing, shameful, depressing, dispiriting um, collapse in Afghanistan. And, and, and not just that, but the moral injury or the slap in the face on top of that moral injury of leaving folks behind, of it's not of we not leaving with honor, right? Not leaving with any sense of we've, we've made this place better or we kept our promises. It's, you know, we're putting people's lives at risk and we're turning their back and abandoning them, betraying them. Um, same thing checking in with some friends who had friends who died on 9-11, or for whom this is a much more visceral personal moment. Um, because I think it's there are there are way, there were ways in the aftermath of 9-11 to feel like you know that that tremendous loss and that tremendous suffering could bring about um a, a more positive outcome. Um, you know, that the The U.S. was woken up to a a risk in the world that we would then move to address or shape or prevent from occurring again. Um, And it's hard to feel two decades on like anything positive has has resulted today.
1: Congressman Peter Meyer, thank you for your service and thank you for your time here today on this 20th anniversary of 9-11. Thank
0: you.